because I hear a lot of stuff that's purely wrong, even for people that I do respect a lot. I think there's a lot of misunderstandings about what Denmark is and what made us rich. You mentioned Bernie Sanders. You can also see Fox News doing the same thing. It's all over. The word socialist often gets thrown around about Denmark's economy. The democratic presidential hopeful Bernie Sanders celebrate the country for its high taxes, effective public services, and happy citizens. Yet at the same time, the country also has strong property rights, a thriving market economy, and as well as private sectors in things like healthcare and education. In fact, one former Danish Prime Minister responding directly to Sanders said, Denmark is far from a socialist planned economy. Denmark is a market economy. Welcome back to the IEA podcast. My name is Matthew Lash, and I'm the IEA's Director of Public Policy and Communications. Each week, this podcast asks a tantalizing policy question. Today's question is, what is Danish capitalism? To discuss, I'm excited to be joined by Dr. Stefan Kirkegaard Slokvadsen. He's the head of education at the Danish economic think tank, CEPOS, and he has a, a background before that in tech and private equity, as well as being an extensive author and public intellectual. His recent book, Danish Capitalism in the 20th Century, is what we're going to be focusing on discussing today. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you for coming in. Thank you for having me. Always great to be in London. I'm wondering what inspired you to write this kind of very broad introduction to Danish capitalism and, and write it in English as well? So it was actually the, uh, the publisher, uh, Palgrave Macmillan, who came to us uh, and asked, uh, can you do an academic, very thorough in terms of sources, introduction to how Danish prosperity came about? Because that has not really been done before. And and Denmark is a hard country to understand if you don't speak Danish, right? So academic conferences, I hear a lot of stuff that's purely wrong, even for people that I do respect a lot, which makes you worry, by the way, a little bit that, that they can say something that you can catch them out on, but that's just human. So I think it was needed. I think there's a lot of misunderstandings about what Denmark is and what made us rich. You mentioned Bernie Sanders. You can also see Fox News doing the same thing. It's all over um, and we, we need this and it is, written mainly for an academic audience, but I do think most people can pick it up and, and, and follow along. So let's um, take it back to, I suppose, where you start the book with this historical lens, going back to the, the state of Denmark in the 19th century. And you make this point that, particularly after the Napoleonic Wars, Denmark was a relatively poor country. We were extremely poor. Actually, we were on the brink of extension. The only reason why we were allowed to continue was basically you guys wanting a buffer state, right? <laughs> so we got a break, basically, right? And, and, uh, uh, and, but we had nothing. We were, our state were bankrupt. We were extremely poor. You guys took our navy. So, you know, that was our bargaining chip, right? We used to be an empire. We still consider ourselves an empire. So we had a lot of ethnic splits and diversity. We had some colonies and we had a German minority and so on. We had lots of issues, but we had nothing going for us. So what we did were we decided to take this lucky break that, that, uh, that we were allowed to continue. And remember, this is a time when lots of European states disappeared. Germany is unified, Italy is unified and so on. So we take this lucky break and we start to believe in core liberal ideas, especially freedom of expression, which has been a big debate going on since like the 1790s and onwards. Uh, but also later on in the century, freedom to trade. We revolutionized the entire society into a market society uh, with a big law reform in the middle of the century. We, um, uh, other, other core like classical liberal ideas like freedom of assembly, freedom of contract, these kind of things. And, and that made us really rich. Now there's an 
interesting sort of parallel here where we got really rich in the next 100 years. Politically, it was sort of like back and forth a little bit. We actually at one point had a conservative dictatorship and so on. But, but economically speaking, it was a huge success. So, so when, when does it start to transform? Is that into the 20th century period? Is it the, the kind of the late 19th century when, when some of these policies come to fruition? So the biggest growth period of Denmark was from the 1870s to the 1920s. So in the 1920s, so 100 years after the period we're talking about, 100 years after the Napoleonic Wars, we were per capita one of the richest countries in the world, which is amazing. It's an amazing story because we have nothing, basically. Like, we, we didn't have any big natural resources. We had several times had to change our agricultural. We lost the war to Germany, the Second Slavery War, which basically cut unheard of the country and 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 some of the main uh, industrial and agricultural areas, right? So we had lots of setbacks, but we still managed to get there. So Denmark is a story about the power of liberal ideas and what they and and how they can inform good policy making. So I'm just unpacking this a bit because there's a lot said in the, uh, I suppose, different claims within the, the literature about why nations succeed and and fail, and you have this different perspective that a lot of is driven by things like geography. Um, you have strong geography, strong natural resources, um, maybe that's like the guns, germs and steel theory of the world yeah. versus the kind of more institutional theory. It's about the, the makeup of the institutions. Um, I mean, in the sense, you're very much on the, on the latter element of that in terms of like the ideas and the organisation of the state um, and the organisation of the economy which then drives the economic development. Yeah, so basically, I'm actually a little bit even before that step. So I'm very much influenced by Dieter McCloskey and her idea of innovism, which is saying that Capitalism is sort of the wrong word because it focuses on capital, whereas that's not really the important things. We have had capital-intensive economies before. What's important is that you have a climate, an institutional climate, that are informed by classical liberal ideas, especially freedom of expression, where people are motivated and able to bring new ideas to the table and get credit for that. And so, so that's very much how I explain why, why we became rich. We had a couple of things going for us before that. We had a high pre-existing trust level. We had high literacy rates because of our Protestant uh, religion and so on. But basically, this is a testimony to the power of ideas that then creates good institutions. Do you, I don't even want to go into any, of the, any more um, depth there in terms of what the, the key policies were that, I suppose, enabled that innovation, those ideas to develop in that period of yeah. essential growth in the 19th into the early 20th century? So we had a big law reform, which under a period of relatively, like about four years, changed us from being a feudal, mercantilistic economy into a free market economy where people could set up shop and you know, all these kind of things that we take for granted today, but which wasn't for granted in the past. In the past, you would inherit your job. You, you were not allowed to make another blacksmith, like there was one blacksmith that, that was passed on and so on. So we, we changed all that. Now, the price for that, and this is really interesting because trees don't go into the heaven as we say in Denmark, right? The price for that was, of course, a national income tax, right? Which ultimately, you can argue, leads to the creation of the welfare state too. So, so but I think that's what actually makes Denmark an interesting case is that Danish policy, even going further back, has always been a trade-off policy. We always know that you know you give some to get some, right? And and when we do things right in Denmark, we manage that quite well. Um, so yeah. And then then on that, how does that kind of interrelate some of that discussion you were um, hinting at earlier about the kind of move towards uh, parliamentary democracy? Because because Denmark goes back and forth a bit in this period. It does it does go back and forth a bit. So basically, the big dis- 
the discussion around defense, how to defend ourselves, especially against Germany. And that continues even into the 20th century. But all well, naturally, yes. <laughs> naturally, exactly. Uh, but, but parliamentarism do end up uh, uh, victorious. One of the reasons for that, though, is unfortunately also a little change in our perception of capitalism. And I'm, I'm not going to be too detailed here. But, but a lot of the period of the high growth from the 1870s onwards were driven by a class of urbanized, very international entrepreneurs. Uh, for instance, a guy like Tietgen, who won the first concession to do the first telegraph line across Russia, right? Uh, but also Jakobsen, who founded Carlsberg, and you know all these kind of people, right? People who generally share a same story that they go out in the world, get a good idea, come back to Denmark and fund that company, which was good to do at that time because we had a good business climate. We can discuss whether we have that today, but that's a, mm. another debate. Um, so we have these, but unfortunately, a part of the, a part of the victory of parliamentarism was also a turning away of that kind of capitalism more towards the cooperative capitalism, the common people's capitalism, which also mattered a lot. Uh, we are famous for having this big cooperative movement, uh, um, which has two sides. It has a farm side, which is still around today, and it also had a left-wing side, which died out because they, they focused more on their employees than on, on customers and profit, right? Um, but, and they sort of win the, win the debate there a little bit, right? So we do see a turning away in the early 20th century of like maybe the purest form of capitalism, entrepreneurial capitalism, more towards a more common version of capitalism. And I'm interested in what, what you think in terms of how this compares, I suppose, to other Nordic countries, to some of your neighbors like Germany or even to the UK and yeah. the US at this point. So the greatest thing about Denmark that I think it makes us interesting to study is that we, we only had ideas. That was the only thing we had. And, and one thing we were really good at so, so Paul Romer, the Nobel laureate, he has this great idea to explain that growth comes from the fact that ideas are, are infinite. Mm. Like I can come up with an idea and you can do the same thing and whoever does it best, you know, it does, it's not like, you know, a field where you can only have a certain crop on and so on, right? And so we basically managed to design a business climate where people could go out and get ideas and come home and implement them in different ways. And I'll tell you what, in that sense, we're sort of like the Chinese, right? Like, <laughs> you know, we, that's what most, most Danish companies did back then. I mean, even Novo Nordisk, which a lot of people talk about today, the, the 19th biggest company in the world in terms of market size. I mean, so the story between them, classic story, sort of the end of this period, they founded in 1923. He wins the Nobel Prize in medicine, if something else goes to Yale University, gives a lecture. Here's about somebody having developed insulin in, in Canada, goes up there, convinces them that he can take it back to Europe and fund the company here, right? Classic stories, find some technology, implements it, and, and now it's the 19th biggest company in the world, right? So yeah, you don't exactly need to be at precisely the forefront no. of all the extreme innovation. And, and this is actually where I think the UK economy perhaps struggles today to some extent. It's, we have this sense of the UK needing to be invest in R&D to create new innovation, but a lot of it is actually just taking innovation elsewhere and taking the best, of, being open to the best of the world in order to catch up and, and be at the, in the top part of, um, of global prosperity. Exactly, that's one part of it. Another part we also have to mention about these kind of entrepreneurs at that time period were that they really did believe in the Borshaw's virtues that Dieter McCloskey talks about. I mean, we can find sources where they're basically refer to these virtues, right? Mm. I mean, it's, I mean, which is amazing, sort of proves a point. And one of them were they were quite patriotic. I mean, they did like Denmark. They wanted Denmark to be something other than Germany and something other than Sweden and so on. So, so they also had that drive. There is a nationalistic or patriotic drive there, which I don't think is a bad thing if it's directed towards making your country richer. I mean, that's, 
that's good, right? So kind of got to the 1920s, you then hit the 1930s, yeah. global depression, yeah. war, occupation. Yeah. Um, and then uh, I suppose what Denmark is, is most famous for, which is its, its welfare state. So I wonder if you talk us through how we get from kind of relatively prosperous capitalistic country that you said had yeah. these kind of collectivist undertones to that you know, famous sense of where, so, where a lot of people still view Denmark today in that kind of post-war era. So the way I explain it is that I use a theory called institutional logic. So an institutional logic is how is the dominant logic as to how it designs institutions to society. And we used to have a liberal institutional logic dominating. However, because of the utter failure of the state during the Second World War, um, and they failed because, you know, what was the purpose of the Danish state basically at that point was to keep the Germans out, right? That was the whole <laughs> point, right? And they failed completely. And then we get this period in the 50s where we're actually sort of like lagging behind economically. We get very powerful special interest groups from labor unions, but also the agricultural sector, who wants to use the state for something. We are highly influenced by Keynesian ideas, the Belvedere Report, and these kind of things. And then when we do get the 60s upturn, these people turn to redistribution. And what I argue in the book is that actually becomes sort of a national tradition because the social logic of institutions take over. And instead of having social reforms to benefit the market, you now get market reforms to benefit the social sector. Now, this goes horribly wrong very early. In, like when I was born 40 years ago, 41 years ago, mm-hmm. we were this close to becoming administrated by the IMF, right? Because we, there's a very famous quote saying by the budget minister at the time, who was a social democrat, saying, we're looking into the abyss, right? Yeah. Um, so, so that starts us on a period of reform. So tell, tell me yeah, more sorry, about how, how it gets to the abyss, because I think yeah. the, the story usually outside of Denmark is very positive yeah. about that, about the development of the welfare state and something that's sustained today. What, what was the, what were the list of policies that led to that kind of disaster? Basically a very, very generous aid law, which took so long to, uh, to implement that by the time it was actually implemented, it was already obsolete, but it was extremely what do you mean, aid to... Uh, so, yeah, welfare law, you could call it. So yes. we call it business loan in Denmark, right? So the, the we would call it the aid law, I guess, in English would be the best translation of it, which was extremely... Uh, <laughs> uh, which was extremely generous, right? And and that was, of course, that, that, that couldn't last. And at the same time, we also... So yeah. was this generous to uh, people who are unemployed? Yeah. Uh, and, and therefore, it kind of encouraged yeah. people to stop working. Exactly, exactly. Where there weren't proper requirements to get people into the workforce. Yes. So that it, would you say, stimulated unemployment yeah. and massive government expenditure. Exactly. Yeah. If you have fewer workers paying for all that, it's exactly. a bit of a disaster, yeah. And we still have few workers paying for it. So one thing that's really important to understand about the social welfare system in Denmark, if I can jump ahead to where we are now, because if you think this is a very important data point, two very important data points, is so 59% of Danes are net recipients of, of transfers, all right? So the welfare state in Denmark is not, you know, the majority paying for a small minority mm. that, that can't take care of it. No, 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 no. It is classic public choice. It's a majority. It's universal benefit. Exactly. And if you like look in terms of tax payments, our top 1% income earners pay about 10% of, of the entire government spending, right? Top 10%, 30%, right? And at the same time, we now have, which is a huge development that happens from the 1960s onward. So in 1970, one third of voters were either mainly relying on recipients, uh, on transfers or public employees, which is 
obviously up a lot from the early part of the century. Now it's two thirds, right? So it's also hard to sort of like change this around, which, which creates some interesting challenges today. So, so uh, we go through this period yeah. of uh, welfare state expansion, and then uh, I suppose some of those benefits are, are pulled back a bit to yeah. make it more affordable. But still, today Denmark has, and this is where I think it does get a lot of attraction, even in the UK and the US, and perhaps more legitimately so, saying, well, Denmark's very prosperous, but they've got a relatively high taxes and relatively high government spending. Well, we are prosperous so we can afford the welfare state. We're not prosperous because of the welfare state. This mm. is a very important causality here. And I think even people on the left admits this now. I mean, if you look at something like educational spending, we not only have free education and free university degrees, we even pay students to attend class, right? So it's like it's extreme spending. Well, since the 2000s, we have had a, 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 a tripling in, in terms of master degrees. All of those have just gone into working in the public sector. Mm-hmm. It just made the sector more expensive, right? And they pushed out people with lower level of education who might actually be better at doing that jo- those jobs, right? People who are like training officers and so on and trainees and so on. So we are now at a sense where because we are so good at capitalism, we can afford to have make some very obscure and even insane policy choices once in a while, right? I don't think that should be emulated. I think our openness should be eliminated, should be uh, should be copied instead. So is it is effectively the argument then that in the early 20th century, um, Denmark establishes a very successful kind of liberal economic yeah. model. That's what delivers the prosperity. It then goes too far in the welfare state direction, but um, doesn't completely destroy those kind of liberal yeah. um, market institutions. And that uh, that enable the prosperity. And I think you've got this point that a lot of Danish businesses are actually quite old. They're yeah. from that, almost from that period. It's extremely important. So if you look at our 25 biggest companies, almost all of them are 100 year older, right? So, and that should tell you something, right? Because if you then look at the companies that have become successful, young companies become successful. So our unicorns, for instance, so those are companies that value it over a million US dollars, right? It's a definition. Billion, yeah. Billion, yeah, billion, so billion, yeah. Um, we created seven of those in the 20th century. All of them has moved, right? So we're a great company. So for a period, we weren't even a great company, a great place to form companies towards the end of the 20th century. That was fixed by the right-wing government in the, in the early 2000s. But we are a horrible place to grow companies because of two things now, uh, because of extreme taxation, the de facto marginal tax rates on capital gain in Denmark is 85. Wow. Yeah, because of double taxation. I would move my business right out of Denmark right if I was going to make yeah. any money whatsoever. Exactly. Yeah. And if you then add with the fact that companies today are almost born global, right? You know, you get global venture funding, more or less mm. right away if you're successful, right? This is a huge issue because the companies that are right now paying for prosperity, like Novo Nordisk, Lego, Maersk, Coloplast, all these kind of, are old, right? They are mm. old. Um, and they're in Denmark for various reasons, most of them the legacy reasons probably. Um, but we need that we need that teenage area. We need to be a good place to be a teenager as a company. And I think that's a main policy issue. Now you taxation is one way to fix that. Another way to fix it is, you know, tie your to the mast and certain certain economic policies, right? Yeah. Um, but that's a big issue. And I think that's a that's a lesson from history that Danish politicians need to understand. So I think Novo Nordisk is a kind of like a fascinating case study though in a very, very successful Danish company that a lot of people yeah. are interested in. The maker of Ozempic, the fat loss drug, yeah. it's, it's making this disproportionate contribution. It's probably the, the, the biggest or second biggest company in Europe now yeah. um, from selling one product. Did they effectively get, I mean, it almost seems like it, it's in some respects they kind of got lucky bringing this product to market, but there was so much something there about 
um, Danish innovation bringing that of forward. So they started with insulin, right? So that's the main company so for diabetes, right? So that's very old, which is very old, right? Yeah. So that was what they started with. And actually, the funding story is, again, perfect example of this. He goes abroad, gets the idea, get it back home. He gets local funding from knowing another guy who, who runs a company called Leo Pharma that's still around today. That's why their first insulin product is called Leo Insulin, right? So, it's to him. so he got, like, local funding from mm. another uh, probably also center-right, liberal, liberal kind of minded person, <laughs> right? Uh, he gets this funding. Um, then some stuff happens when he disagrees with some of the people who works for stuff. That's a little bit too detailed to get into here. But, and then, you know, they, so they invest in insulin, they invest in, um, in uh, oh, what's that called? In um, people who have um, too loose blood, uh, oh, hemorrhaging, uh, Hem- yeah, yeah. yeah, hemorrhaging, yeah, yeah. medicine. And then they develop this, you know, obesity drug because it's related to diabetes, right? Right, it's, right. A, it's a step forward. It's a step and, forward, and of, right. and of course, it was a positive side effect of the drug that it led to weight loss. The, the original intent of the drug was not necessarily weight loss. Exactly. Uh, exactly. It, it, it just had that, that um, nice little... Exactly. Um, impact. Exactly. And they're also very heavily invested in buying lots of like small startups and patents and so on. Like they have a huge foundation now that buys up these kind of things. So I think they're quite secure for the future. And there is something I talk about that in the book as well. I'm a big believer in the Lindy effect. Uh, so the Lindy effect is that the longer something humanly conceived has been around, the more likely it is to last. <laughs> right. Uh, but even with that, companies do mess up. Right. So we cannot, as a small economy, rely on these couple of really great companies, uh, we do have to make sure that young companies are still founded, right? So your, your kind of like final descriptor for, for Denmark and in the subtitle of your book is Innovistic Mixed Economy. Yeah. Um, I want to even kind of take us through what, what that means, yeah. bringing this so, all together. Yeah. So innovism is the idea of saying that capitalism doesn't really explain what capitalism is, the word, because yeah. it focuses too much on capitalism. Yeah, exactly. Insights, yeah. exactly. So, you know, it, it's, it's a matter of, of, of ideas informing mindsets informing institutions, right? Now, the mixed economy is because that's what we are. I mean, so... Over 50% of our gross domestic product is publicly spent, right? So that would make us a mixed economy, right? And you can talk about why we are there and why we... There's, there's many different reasons for that. I think a lot of Danish people are not really aware of how much taxes they're paying because they're just being... They're, the way it works in Denmark is we have source taxation. So so before I get my paycheck, my employer has already paid the taxes, right? Mm. So I don't really get to see it. Well, I can look it up, but, you know, the fact that the money that hits my account has always been tax deductible. So... So I think a lot of Danish people are not even really aware of how much that's actually being spent that way. However, one thing that I think is changing now, which is really great, is that we realize that we cannot keep just pouring more money into the public sector. We need more markets there, right? So I think we're going to see some, even in the sectors that are the closest to socialism, but we don't have socialism because there's no government monopoly of the means of production anywhere, right? Even in education, as you said, and healthcare, there are private alternatives. I think we're going to see a lot more competition and privacy there because that's that's how we're going to fix this thing, right? And one last thing that I think is also very important to mention in all this is that we are the nightmare that Max envisioned, Karl Max, the founder of Cal. Like <laughs> he he says several places that the worst thing that can happen for the communist revolution is a system where the workers get so rich and sort of bought up that they de facto become capitalists and no longer want the revolution. That's exactly what happened in Denmark. Uh, Danish employers recognized people's rights to strike, but the, the unions and the Social Democratic Party recognized the employers' right to control the means of production. You know, it's, 
you know, Max lost, right? This is one of the main theoretical arguments why, you know, we're, we're, we are actually the nightmare of a communist, right? Yeah, well, the, the historical determinism that uh, when countries got rich, the internal contradictions and frustrations would inevitably lead to revolution um, didn't, of course, end up being true. And the places where there were proper Marxist revolutions, like in the Soviet Union or China, they were actually much less developed countries. Exactly. They didn't go through their liberal market kind of phases now, did they? So what, then, what, can we, what should we take away? What can we learn from Denmark? Because I, I think there's, the, the, there's, life sounds great, right? Yeah. It's the sixth richest country in the world. Some public services are probably much better than uh, delivered than in the UK. Um, you have some major successful, uh, still somehow innovative companies, despite being so historical. Yeah. Um, what, what, can we, what, what should we grab out? From, we sh- from Denmark. We should grab out something that, unfortunately, some of my countrymen is also losing sight of, is that the fundamental ideas of who you are as a nation and civilization matters for economic outcome. Mm. They don't matter tomorrow, but they matter, in, and they might not even matter in 10 years, but they will matter in 100 years. So right now we have a big debate in Denmark about uh, the government wants to limit our freedom of speech in order to not provoke religious people and religious sentiments. And that's a horrible step back because it's a break with who we are. And I think what we should take away from Denmark is that it's a story of hope because if you believe in these classical liberal ideas, they will deliver result. But you do have to believe in them, mm-hmm. even when they hurt you in the short run. And, and, and even when people use it for stuff you don't like. And, and then I, I suppose that kind of dovetails quite well to, to what, what do you see as the, the future of Danish capitalism? What are some of the, I suppose, points of opportunity and... That you can see coming yeah. for. So I am a big advocate for something I called a, a renewed discussion about patriarchal capitalism. I do think countries in Europe should have a fundamental discussion about how, what capitalism means for them, because capitalism is always nationally embedded. And this is not a matter of just doing everything businesses want. It's definitely not that. But it's a matter of deciding what kind of playing field can we make the market work for the kind of nations that we want, right? Because uh, there are trade-offs involved. One of the fav- one of the great trade-offs I think in Denmark is that we have one of the most liberal retail laws in the country. I mean, in the world. Sorry, you can basically do anything, be open when you like, and all these kind of things. Except well, for one thing. Except for one thing, you cannot build a store over a certain size. So we don't have any hypermarkets like Walmart and Carrefour and so on. And that's if we did that, we would lower consumer price in an average with two percent, right? But it would also lead to, you know, closing of local communities and so on. So here we have done a trade-off. We open eyes said, okay, we can be a little bit poorer here because we want to prioritize that. Now that's fine if you do it with open eyes. And I, I, I would very much welcome a national capitalism discussion in all countries. I think that's something that, that we need. There's no doubt capitalism is the greatest system and the greatest creator of wealth and success, right? So how do we make that work great for us? Well, uh, Dr. Stefan Kakad-Slokmadsen, thank you so much for joining the IEA podcast. Uh, if anyone is interested in, in learning more, um, I, I do recommend them your book, Danish Capitalism in the 20th Century, which is both an academic and, and accessible introduction, particularly in English, which I think is, is quite rare since we, we often only hear second or third hand. And I think the situation you're painted today is far more complex and, and nuanced and interesting than, than what's often put out on uh, in the political realm. Um, if you are enjoying the IEA podcast, please do subscribe on your chosen podcast provider. If you'd like to learn more about the IEA's work, just visit iea.org.uk.